We are in Colossians chapter 1. Dun, da, da, da. We will finish the chapter, even though you thought we never would. We're going we're gonna to get through this. I promise you we'll finish the book one day. Remember, quick lesson, though, from something mentioned a few weeks ago. It's a letter. They would not have sat down and read it over the course of 14 weeks like we're going to go through it. They would have read it in how long it would take you to read this, which, what, four chapters? Where's our little chart? It's, it's probably on that chart somewhere. You can, probably, you can probably go home and read Colossians in less than 15 minutes, even if you're a slow reader taking your time. That's how they would have read it, which means they would have understood the points that we're looking at today in light of what has been said before. So what has been said before? Well, we have laid down a theological framework who Christ is, why that matters, who they are, how those things work together. It is with those understandings in mind that you can actually have joy and fellowship. Remember that lesson. This is something we talked about on Wednesday um, a few weeks ago when we are going through Acts. Christian fellowship is not just based on the fact that we get along and don't argue. Christian fellowship is based upon the fact that we have a common faith in Christ. It is based upon biblical fidelity and an understanding of who we are in Christ. Now, that means your joy in this world should be set upon who? Christ and Christ alone, because that's where Scripture is pointing you towards. If your joy is in anything else, your joy will be, well, torn apart pretty quickly in light of everything that goes on in the world. The next thing you have to remember is if you have an understanding of who Christ is, if your understanding of yourself is based upon Christ, and if you are seeking joyful fellowship with fellow believers, then you actually have to do things. You are free from your labors in this world, and you are free to your labors for the world to come. And that matters because it is built upon who you are in Christ, which means not some of your life, but all of your life needs to be redefined by the, by the completed work of Christ, and all of your life needs to be refocused onto the kingdom of God. Not some of it, all of it, and that's where we're going today. You ready? Dun, da, da, da. So let's dive in, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. To which we would say, good job, Paul, that's what you're supposed supposed to be doing. James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James and Paul are not the only ones with that idea. First Peter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, that this is the uh, understanding of Christ, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul should rejoice in his sufferings in this world because he is suffering. Why? Which, by the way, just to make sure, real quick, let's define this rightly. Just, I know this is not you, but let me just make sure anyway. If you are driving around like a lunatic in traffic and you're like ramming into people and cutting people off and the police pull you over and arrest you and haul you off to pay for everything, you don't get to sit there and go, I am rejoicing in my sufferings because I have been persecuted. No, you've been a jerk. There's a difference between those two things. 
you are persecuted and you rejoice in that persecution when the persecution comes because you have been faithful unto Christ. You have refused to surrender the teachings of Scripture and you have refused to go along with the demands of this world as they stand contrary to the commands of Christ. Do you understand the difference real quick? Like, I don't get to walk around in Walmart ramming people with my shopping cart and when they go, why are you so mean? Why are you persecuting me? That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So when we talk about that, you don't get carte blanche to be mean in the world. You don't get carte blanche to just act however you wish and then claim persecution. We actually are talking about something legitimate, which is you living faithfully under the commands of Christ and the world going, stop doing that. And you saying, no, that's what we mean by persecution. Just want to make sure we cover that. Paul should rejoice in his sufferings for the sake of Christ. By the way, who else should rejoice in their sufferings for the sake of Christ? Everyone. Romans 8. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, the section right before that is Paul rejoicing in what? We're being put to death day by day for the sake of the gospel. Now, fun question about the Colossians, because remember, everything you read now has to be read in light of what has come before. Does Paul know these people? No, he has never been to Colossae. Colossae, pick your pronunciation, I don't care. <laughs> He's never been there. He knows people who have been there. He knows who founded the church. He is hearing a testimony, and yet what are they? They are his people, because their fellowship, the fellowship that Paul has with them is based upon what? The fact that they're poker buddies? No, the fact that they are fellow believers in Christ. So Paul can encourage them and rejoice in all that they are undergoing, and he can proclaim to them all that he is undergoing because it is a common experience among believers. So in other words, once again, you should have something in common with Christians you have not met. Your culture may be different. Your language may be different. The way that the world demands of you may be different. But your firm stance for Christ should be the same, and your refusal to go along with the schemes of this world should be the same as well. The scheme in North Korea might be different than the scheme in Wisconsin, but they are still the schemes of this world. Evaluate accordingly. Now, Paul is rejoicing. He is uh, suffering for their sake and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is interesting because this is not the only place where Paul talks about this idea. Galatians chapter 6. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. He told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So, Paul is being persecuted Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So Paul is being persecuted so that he may be saved, right? Making sure you're paying attention. The answer to that is no. And again, to quote Romans, may it never be. Rather, perseverance is doing what? Go back to James. That passage from James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may, perf you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as you persevere against this world, and as the slings and arrows of this world continue and they do not abate, you do what? You continue. You are now building endurance. I mean, this is, uh, anybody ever taken up distance running of any kind? 
do you just like start out and be like, I'm going to go tackle 30 miles today. Sounds like fun, right? You just, here we go. Yeah. Why not? What could possibly go wrong? Other than your ankles, knees, hips, lungs, you know, <laughs> somewhere around mile 12, you cough up a lung and you're like, oh, I don't think I can continue running anymore. We're done here. No, what do you do? You start with a slower distance and then you add to it. This is the worst part of trying to do any distance running. And then you have to keep adding and keep adding, keep adding. Or you do like I had to do once upon a time where I had a mile and a half for time. So what did I do? I got to the point where I could do the mile and a half, and then it was 10 laps in the little track I was doing, and then what happened? Then my lap one was faster, and then I would slow down for the other nine laps, and the next week, what would happen? Two laps were faster, and then I slowed down for my other eight laps, and then three laps were faster, and after a couple of months of this, what can I do? I can go out there and basically run all 10 laps and bring my time down. No, I won't tell you, because it's not that impressive. If it was impressive, I'd tell you, but... <laughs> This is true in your spiritual walk as well. When are you given the faith that you need to handle the trials you are undergoing? When you are in them. That's when you look and go, I don't know if I have the faith to do that. Of course you don't know. You're not doing that. You'll be granted that grace when the time comes. You are training for that by undergoing the trials you have now. The faith that you have now being built up by the Holy Spirit, strengthened day by day, so that again, how many, how many steps and victories do we celebrate? What if they look like that? Do we celebrate that? Yes, we celebrate. Because this is more faith than I had back there. And when I get all the way over there, that'll be more faith than I have now. Doesn't matter. It took me 10 years to get there. I still got there. Some of us are doing better than others. You know, your mileage may vary. Terms and conditions may apply. <laughs> hey, you live in a world. Always remember that. This is one of the reasons why... Um, I try to make sure every church I've ever been around understands the idea, even though it's not a Bible verse, that there but for the grace of God go I. Because we, look, we have a really bad tendency of looking at somebody and be like, how can you do that? Well, I get that you don't struggle with that, but I guarantee if we peel back the layers of the onion long enough, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find the thing that that person's going to look at you and go, oh, how could you? We all struggle in different ways because we're all wired a little differently and we are all being strengthened day by day at different times. You have had this experience if you have lived long enough in Christ that you woke up one morning and all of a sudden something just hit you. And you're like, I have been living like this my entire life in Christ. Ha, ha, why didn't we take care of this 15 years ago like we were supposed to? Well, it wasn't time yet. The Holy Spirit wasn't bringing you that. He said, not yet. You deal with this, and then we deal with that, and then at some point down the line, you're going to get there. I mean, trust me, if you get to live long enough, you're going to be 40, 50 years into your walk with Christ and go, I can't believe I'm still doing this. I can't believe I am fighting with this temptation. I cannot believe I am warring with this sin. Some of you are over 70 years old in the room going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, this is just the reality of a sinful world. There is no perfection this side of the veil. But we can rejoice that God has not abandoned us, that he has strengthened us. And the fact that we are persevering is a proof of his work in our lives day by day. That's what Paul means by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He is being sanctified. He is being strengthened day by day. Christ's afflictions have covered that, but my afflictions have not taught me enough lessons yet. <laughs> Therefore, what do we got to do? We get to go around the mountain another time. We have to deal with this and we keep fighting as we we persevere and bear up, and God strengthens us unto the day of completion. That's what Paul tells the uh, church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 1. 
Just as the sufferings of Christ are our hours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. In other words, why can Paul be comforted? Because he is dealing with persecution in this world. Why is he dealing with persecution in this world? Because he is standing firm for Christ and he will be comforted and carried forward by the work of the Spirit. And by the way, that work day in and day out is part of the building work of the church. It's part of what it looks like day by day is you persevere and you walk through these things so that you can then comfort one another, so that you can encourage someone else, so that you will learn and pass on the lessons. Again, I'm sure your parents told you, hey, don't do that. Why not? Because I did that. And what did you do? (laughs) Some of you giggled for a second. You know what you did? You did it anyway. And then you said what? The painful admission that no teenager wants to make, which is what? That my parents were right about something. The pain, the suffering, the agony. Welcome to, yeah, welcome to discipleship in the church. You look back on 10, 20, 30 years of difficulty, of sanctification, of struggles, and you go, why was that such a war? And then you meet somebody who's going through that, and you're like, ah, (laughs) okay, here, let me help you not deal with this for three, four, five years. Let me help you knock this out in 20 minutes, because here's what happens. Here's where this goes. Here's the advice. This is, again, why I tell you, you know, all these little gray hairs that we try to cover up, they're good for you. They're a sign of wisdom. They're a sign of growth. They're a sign of knowledge that you have learned, that you have persevered, and that you are overcoming and have overcome day by day. We need that. If you look at a church and there are no gray hairs, run. And by the way, when you run out of a church, how should you run? No. Screaming and throwing things. Always remember that. Remember the rules. I'm serious about this. This is part of the danger of changing the way we look at church. And when you always find that place, it's a new way to do church. Always leave that place immediately. Because they're going, first thing they're going to run out with their new way is the gray hair. And when you run out all your gray hair, you know what you're running out at the same time? Wisdom. Patience. Sanctification years of growth and learning. It is necessary and we need every last bit of it. So, Paul talking about that church, verse 25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. Remember who commissioned Paul because that is important when you understand his ministry. If you don't know, we'll read it, Acts 9. The Lord said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul is commissioned, not by Peter, not by James, not by the apostles. Paul is commissioned by God. So he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Which, by the way, is the fulfillment of all of the Holy Spirit's work. Um, Galatians 1, Paul confirms this. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. This is one of those things why understanding Trinitarian theology is important. So, let's make sure we cover this rightly. The Holy Spirit, whose pronouns are 
<laughs> Just making sure. We have become that church. So if somebody goes, does your church validate pronouns? Yes. Yes, we do. As long as we're talking about God. <laughs> so there you go. You can now put that on the website somewhere. So the Holy Spirit, what is his job? This is important, by the way, so don't just like shout out an answer, although if you went with the Sunday School answer, you wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but I would want more details. What is the work that the Holy Spirit is meant to accomplish? I don't mean the day-to-day strengthening believers, renewing the heart, transforming the mind. What's the purpose of that work? To point to Christ, because that is who Christ has died for. He has died for his people. Now, the Holy Spirit points to Christ. You are now focused upon Christ. When Christ stands before the Father, he takes this people and does what? He presents this people to the Father. The Father then looks at this people that have been strengthened by the Spirit, who have been redeemed by the Son, and he says what about them? They are my people, and he does what? All right, put them in a corner somewhere. We'll file them away in a drawer. He presents them back to the Son so that the Trinity is working amongst himself, which is not grammatically correct, but when speaking about God, it is grammatically correct. (laughs) So this gets confusing, sorry. The Trinity is glorifying himself and worshiping himself because God is the greatest being in all of creation and all worship should point to him. So when the Son receives the people, they are now celebrated and strengthened by the Spirit, which is again pointing to the Son who is presents to the Father. You, You see how this works? for all eternity. Therefore, God would be glorified and he would be all in all. I point that out because this is the consistent testimony of your scripture. So things like uh, 1 Corinthians 12, so you ever wonder about the purpose of your spiritual giftings? There are varieties of spirits with the same spirit, variety of ministries with the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God works all things and all persons. To each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I tell you that because one, to answer one of the questions, can the Holy Spirit tell you to do something that's against Scripture? No, why not? Who's the author of Scripture? God. Who is the Holy Spirit? If God could contradict himself, it wouldn't be God. That's just one of those logical syllogisms that you need to understand. The other important part of that is to understand the role that the Holy Spirit plays in your day-to-day life. This is one of the reasons why I am a cessationist, and if you don't want to get into the weeds on that, I'm not going to try to right now. It's one of the reasons why I jokingly pick a little bit on the Pentecostals, just a tiny bit, because whatever unbiblical American Pentecostalism tries to present many times is not Spirit-led ministry. And by the way, I'm trying to make a distinction between Bible-believing Pentecostal ministries and what I'm calling American unbiblical Pentecostalism. Am I making sense there that there's a distinction? There are, there are people who believe in speaking in tongues and the continuation of the ministries who I would gladly call brothers in Christ. I have no issues with that. I think they're wrong, but I have no issues with that. So often what you end up seeing, though, the slippery slope becomes the TV ministry where we're sowing seeds and we're naming and claiming. And if you, if you would just do this, then you would receive this gift and then you'd be like a super Christian or something. That's literally unbiblical garbage. And it should be balled up and thrown away because it does not align with scripture and it does not testify to Christ. So when you see the faith healer up on stage waving his jacket around and throwing things, who are we testifying to? Who's the star of that show? He is. Who does the Holy Spirit point to? Christ. Who does Christ present his people to? The Father. 
The Trinity works at worshiping himself. The work of God is meant to point to God, not anything else. The minute you, st- the minute you think that it's pointing to something else, you have found the work going in the wrong direction. This is why I make distinctions on whatever is biblical and unbiblical. There are people that understand the continuation of spiritual gifts based on Scripture. I'm okay with that. I think they're wrong, but I'm okay with that. At the same token, the minute you step away from Scripture, you have stepped away from an objective understanding of what the faith is, and you are on dangerous grounds. I've told you a thousand times. You want to do something in life? What do you need to bring? What do you need to explain it by? You better have at least one. One what? One Bible verse. got to give me one. At least give me something so that we can discuss, because at least then I can say, okay, here's what you're understanding rightly, or here's what you're understanding wrongly. We can talk about that. The minute you step away from Scripture, you no longer have an objective justification. What are we doing here? Who's the standard? I am. The minute I become the standard, what's wrong? No. What should you do the the minute you think I have become the standard, what should you do? Throw things and run screaming from the room. Exactly right. I, I did this years ago. I've told you the story before, but I, I, I got invited to a Bible study and I wanted to ring the neck of the guy who invited me <laughs> because it was a Bible study and it was my retired director of missions in our association and it was a retired Baptist pastor leading the Bible study who was not Bible-believing and his Jewish friend who wasn't practicing Jew, but he was ethnically Jewish, and I got invited, and his pastor got invited, and a Methodist, and a guy from the Church of the Brethren, and a Presbyterian got invited. <laughs> and the entire Bible study was, about, was trying to explain how we're all understanding Romans wrongly so that he could justify making homosexuality not sinful. That was the entire point of the Bible study. Now, can, just imagine sticking me in that Bible study, and then did, how quiet do you think I was? <laughs> I went for like four weeks because I'm a glutton for punishment and argued with that man every week for a month. I had the other people got invited and like grabbed me afterwards and be like, I can't come back next week, but thank you for being here and arguing. I'm like, slacker, get back here. I need help. And after a month though, the roundabout thing was he wanted to redefine the Bible based on whose understandings. His. And it took me a month, but you know what? I got him to admit that, and I was so proud of myself. (laughs) He's like, fine, I'm the standard. We're done here, because the minute you're the standard, we have nothing to talk about, because we are no longer anywhere objective. Christian, be careful in the world. That is the place, that's where the pull is bringing you. They want to bring you to the place where you are the standard. You are the arbiter of what is good and right and righteous. You're not. You can't. You have to have something objective that you come back to. That something, let me do my Johnny Depp impression again, that something is scripture. You are supposed to be anchored upon the testimony of the apostles as it points to Christ. Who helps strengthen that work? Well, again, come back to your Trinitarian theology. The apostles are doing that because who fell at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes. And who does the Holy Spirit testify? He testifies to Christ. Who do they write about? They write about a testimony to Christ. So that you would be the people of God, worshiping rightly, empowered by His Spirit, understanding the work that He has accomplished in His Son, so that God would be glorified in everything. Not some of the things. Everything. Which once again means, if you're not standing where Scripture would have you to stand, as the song puts it, all other ground is... Sinking sand. You have found your sinking sand. What, what do we do to the thing that is pulling you onto the sinking sand, Christian? We kill it. And how do we kill it? Yes, we kill it with fire. That is always the goal. <laughs> hey, I give you these because 
it sounds silly, but we want to make it a little bit fun, yes, but we also want to make it memorable. I don't want you to ever get the feeling that I'm warring, but we're never having any victory over sin. I'm fighting, but I just, I'm just kind of fighting in a way where I'm trying to get a decision at the end of 15 rounds, if I use a boxing analogy. We don't want a decision from the officials. We don't want to leave it up to a decision at the end. We want to do what? We want to win. I used to tell my baseball players this. Um, I, I coached a baseball team that was a upper middle of the conference team. There was one team in our conference that was really good, and then there were a handful of teams in our conference that were really, really bad. And by really, really bad, I mean... I had kids throwing 70, 80 miles an hour, and we were playing teams that they had pitchers throwing 40-mile-an-hour fastballs. Like, I had, I've coached 12-year-olds that can throw harder than that. And it was frustrating for my kids to go out there because they would start goofing off and not taking it seriously, and next thing you know, we're playing a seven-inning game, and it's the sixth inning, and we're losing. And it's, it's like, how? I used to tell them, go out, do your job, hit the ball, run the bases like you're supposed to, play defense, Let's win this game by mercy rule like we're supposed to and go home. How do you do that? By doing your job and not goofing off and playing their game. That's you in the world. That's the, that's the trick that the world wants to give. It wants to goof off and make jokes and play silly and get you to do anything but pay attention to what scripture commands and how God is leading. Now you're walking along doing their thing, playing their game, making dumb decisions, and you're going, why am I like this? How did this happen? You cut your own anchor you have abandoned truth. What's the cure, Christian? Recognize for this too Christ has died. To return unto his great work, to recognize that he has covered all of your sin in his atonement. He has covered all of your iniquity, and he will bring you to that good end if you will but trust in him. Now that trust looks like something moving forward, and Paul is going to get us there as we keep on moving. So, He's a minister of the church, stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages, from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. This is the longing. I've mentioned at the very beginning that you are saved from your labors in this world, but you are saved to your labors in the kingdom. This is what the world does not understand in its natural state. This is the mystery of humanity. Like, grab a philosopher. What's the great question of humanity? Why are we here? And then there's always like dramatic music in the background. You know, and then there's like a zoom out into space to show the planet to make you look really tiny and feel small. Christian, why are you here? To grab my favorite um, understanding of this, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So why are you here? God. You are here because of God. You are here for God. And this has been the answer that humanity has been trying to figure out. 1 Peter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Here's one for you. Do you ever wish you had more power? Do you ever wish you weren't a frail, fallen human? Not even a little bit? You were never the kid, like, wrapping your bed sheets around your neck and pretending to be Superman? Was I the only weirdo who did that? 
none of you are that weird? Now I feel bad. (laughs) We don't think about this. Who do you think has a better understanding of God? You or an angel? (laughs) Things into which angels long to look. They may stand in his presence. They have seen his work down through the ages. He dwells within you. He communes with your spirit. He guides you. He shapes you. He molds you into the perfect being that you are to be in his presence. And he will complete that work. And you will stand with an understanding of who God is that surpasses the knowledge of the angels that have been there for eternity. That's not an understanding we take day in and day out of who we are and what Christ has accomplished. We see this as just, oh yeah, I read a book and I made sense of it. No, 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 no. You understand the purpose of humanity and the reason your life exists. Go grab the average pagan and ask them if they are comfortable like that in this world. What does it mean to have peace in this place? It means to be at rest knowing who I am and what I am to live like in this world. It is a gift of God granted by his spirit because of the accomplishment of his son so that he would be glorified. Jesus promises this or talks about this. Mark 4. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. Because remember, Jesus famously teaches in parables. He was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Which almost sounds a little mean, doesn't it? They can't return and be forgiven. Why not? Heart has not been changed. Mind, therefore, has not been renewed. You have been changed by the work of God. You have been changed by the indwelling of his spirit, and you see this place differently. At that Christian, you should rejoice. You should then look at the world around you, and you should mourn. Because you see what? Lost. And you see dying, and you see incapability. Now, what changes that? Or better yet, who changes that? Who changes the hearts and minds of men? God does. What means does he use to do it? The proclamation of him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. The proclamation of the gospel. Who then is the agent that accomplishes this? Holy Spirit. To point to Christ, to celebrate the work of God so that God would be all in all. In other words, the same way you got in is the same way they would get in. You want to save the world. You want to change it. You want this place to be a better place. (sighs) Watch the news for five seconds. How will you save the world? Come on, you know what the answer is. This is the most important election of your life. Until what happens? Until next year comes along. (laughs) I actually heard somebody this week on, on one of the radio shows I listened to who has made jokes about that in the past actually say that this was the most important election of his lifetime. I'm like, dude, you've been mocking that for five years, and now you're like, I'm in. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Here we go. Always remember the rule of the cults, children. Don't ever drink the Kool-Aid. It is never good for you. It never promises what it promises, okay? never accomplishes what it promises. <laughs> if you don't get that reference, read a history book from the 70s. It'll be good for you. I joke about that, but why do we laugh when we hear it's the most important election of our lives? It's like, when did the news become like pro wrestling, just out of curiosity? 
It seems like that with the graphics. The only thing that's missing is like the 8 p.m. Eastern host to come out to like fireworks and entrance music. That's the only thing that's missing. And then it would be the same. You'd be like, I'd watch that. <laughs> that's what we need. Get the guys from Fox News and CNN into a cage fight. And see, <laughs> see, some of you are like, can they all lose? Like, if they can all lose, I would definitely say, yes, that I would watch. Why do we laugh at this, though? Because that doesn't change the world. We've, we've been told this since literally the 1940s with newspapers and radio that this is the election that will change everything. And what has it actually changed? Not a whole lot. Because what changes the hearts and minds of men? God, through the work of his spirit. What changes society? The number of people following after God, obedient to his commands, building families, loving communities, discipling neighbors, accomplished because of what? Who they are here, not who they are out there. Who they are out there is a product of who they are here. So, I keep hitting the wrong thing. There we go. So, has been manifested to his saints, revealed to them. Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Ooh, guess who that is? That's us. I mean, unless you're actually ethnically Jewish, you're the Gentiles, or you're part of the Gentiles anyway. Of course, some of you may be able to go back far enough and change that, but as his people, you see him clearly. Why? Because you have been made his people. You can't see him clearly from the outside. Remember the bad analogy? Who will never understand the boy? The bug in the jar will never understand the boy who put him there. Unless the boy can do what? Explain himself. Ooh, ooh, ooh. What have we got? We've got an explanation. Who God is. What he is doing. Why we matter. Why what he does matters to us and how that changes who we are. Romans 3. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. By the way, I know I do this every time, but propitiation, to turn away wrath. There you go. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, Christian, what other means is there to get in? Other than Christ, what other way in is there? There, there isn't one. So, Jew and Gentile, saved by what? Christ. Saved through his work, empowered by his spirit, not another way, not another people, one gospel of God, one people of God, one salvation of God, which, by the way, is what he promised. Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Hosea 2. 
It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. And I will, sh- I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So to whom God willed to make known, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember, the Colossian church is a primarily Gentile church. This is good news for them. They are the people of God, as God has promised, he has delivered. First Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I know, I know, I know, if you're following along at home, that's like the third week in a row we have read that. Why? Why do you keep going back to 1 Peter 2? Within that quote, Peter is either quoting or borrowing from Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 19, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, Isaiah 62, Isaiah 43, and Malachi 3. (laughs) Those two verses from Peter are grabbing from swaths of the Old Testament. In other words, a fulfillment of God's working amongst his people. Peter takes that from the Old Testament and says, that's you, Christian. That's where you stand. Those promises of Isaiah, they're yours. Those words of Hosea, they're yours. That people of God, you're them. You are holy and righteous because of the work of Christ. You are now set apart, not because of who your parents were, but because of who your God is. You are changed, not because you did better, but because the Holy Spirit has redeemed you and strengthened you and will carry you forward. And you can rejoice that all the things that Israel was longing for are now the things that God will fulfill in eternity, and you may rejoice in them. Those promises are the promises for God's people. Therefore, Christian, they are your promises. And the fulfillments will be fulfillments of God for you as well. Therefore, verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, to which we would say, duh. I mean, what else would you do in this situation? If I told you, here's the message that explains who humanity is, what has gone wrong, who God is, how God has set that right, and will change the way you see the world and live accordingly, would you go, well, have you got anything else? (laughs) It's like when you walk in the car lot and be like, I want this kind of vehicle and I want to pay this price. And the guy goes, here you go. It's the exact thing you want for the exact price you want. Do you sit there and go, well, you know, now that I'm here, (laughs) you know what's going to happen the minute you do that, right? You're going to spend money you didn't want to spend. I saw that. Behave. (laughs) That's better. So, we're doing good. Yeah, we're not strobe lights. We're not trying to have a mini disco here, so we're doing well. I mean, you do that with the dealer, and you're just going to pay more than you want. So you take the greatest offer in human history and go, well, you know, I want to keep my options open. I want to see what else is out there. You're going to pay more than you want to pay. And you know what that's going to cost you? Everything. Everything. This is the message. This is the understanding. 
This is the completion. Therefore, what should be the anchor for your life? What should be the message you proclaim? What should be the guiding light for how you live? It should be this because there's not anything else. Um, Acts 4, Peter says this, There is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So you proclaim him with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's what this is accomplished. And by the way, just because I glossed over it the first time, um, repeated words lesson from your Bible, right? Any repeated words in here we should be paying attention to? We proclaim it, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. What's the repeated word? Every man. For whom is this message? Is that the right use of whom? Was that, should that have been who? I, I, I always want to use whom correctly and I never think I get it right. So, you know. <laughs> I always think I'm being too hoity-toity when I try to use it correctly. Now, not some of them, all of them. Not some of your life, all of your life. This is your lesson from Scripture. Um, things like Hebrews 12. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You are prepared because of the work of Christ. You are empowered because of the work of the Spirit. You will be successful because of the promises and accomplishment of God. And this should have effect in every avenue of your life. And this is the message that should be used to disciple every person you meet. Which means, when you go out into the world and the world goes, I don't want to hear about your religion, what should be your response? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what you want to hear about. You don't have any way to understand this. Because if you don't understand who God is, and you don't understand the one who is created and the creation that he has made, then how in tarnation will you make sense of this creation? We've used this bad example before. Do I have something? Oh, here we go. Give me that. Oh, it won't pop off. Fine, I will just use the whole thing. All right. Simple lesson. If I drop this, what's going to happen? Are you sure? How do you know that? No, I'm serious. No, you, what's gravity? How does gravity work? And I'm serious about that question, by the way. If you grab a science teacher, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going with it. Grab a science teacher. How does gravity work? <laughs> yeah, but now, now I quantify it with an equation. <laughs> Is that a constant always? <laughs> Sorry. I'm not picking on you. It's one of the fun little things about science. For all our understandings of science functioning the way that it does, we act at the end of the day, you have to be a little comfortable with saying gravity works. We sort of understand how it works, but at the end of the day, there's it's like it's like 90% scientific method we can figure this out and it's like 10% voodoo. <laughs> Cuz at the end of the day it works, but we're not entirely sure that it or how it works, but we know that it does and it exists. Now my argument would be remove God from the equation completely. There's a chance, if this is all just random molecules bumping into each other, there is a chance that one time when I drop this, what will happen? It won't fall. There's, I'm not saying it will happen, but there's a chance. The reason why we say this is a constant is because we believe this is a universe ordered and ordained by God, run by 
logical principles from a logical mind because they've been created by a logical mind. Therefore, it is constant. Take that away, and this world makes no sense. That is why when you go out into the world and they say, I don't want to hear about your God, I don't care. He makes sense of everything else. If you'd like to see a really good example of this, because you're not going to see it in science as much as you're going to see it in things like my area of study. I was a history person, and you're not even going to see it there as much as you'll see it in other places. But you've never heard in the last five, six years, well, you know, language evolves. (laughs) You've not heard that at all, have you? Not even a little bit. That was a rule of grammar, and now it's not. Do you know why we called them rules of grammar? Because basically every language had them. And while words can change over time, the structure of language across culture is what? Fairly constant. It's fairly constant. Which is why um, any, uh, any linguist will tell you, technically they are philologists, if you ever wanted to be fancy at a party, they are philologists, will tell you that if you can learn one foreign language, it is easier from that point forward to learn other foreign languages because you have more grounding for grammatical learning, not just grammatical learning, but for um, vocabulary learning. It makes it easier to anchor new words because you have some more than one word to anchor them to. And because the principles of language, for the most part, carry over. So if you know two languages, picking up a third is easier than picking up your second, and picking up a fourth was easier than picking up your third, and so on and so forth. You would think it'd be more complicated because you get confused. It's actually easier because the principles don't change, unless we'd like them to. Because who's the authority? We are. The minute we become authorities because we have become unanchored from God and who he is. Which is why, once again, when they say, I don't care about your God, I don't care. He makes sense of me and you and everything that goes on. He is the constant that explains all the variables that sin tries to throw into the world. To which you can say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, keep that, throw that one out, lose this one, keep that one. That is the God becomes the standard by which we do that because he is the standard for all of these things. So let's finish up. Ah, Don't lose my place here. For this purpose also I labor. Good. Paul practices what he preaches. You should too. Striving according to his power. Hey, hey. Paul's not out there going, I'm going to do this on behalf of God. He's going to say what? I work for God according to his strength, according to what he has accomplished, which mightily works within me. How does Paul know that? Doesn't that sound like just a teensy-weensy bit arrogant? I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Doesn't, doesn't that, if you, would you say that? Would you say that confidently? Like, if you said that, you'd be like, oh, was that a little too much? Should I soften that a little bit? Start second-guessing yourself like that argument you're rehashing in the shower every morning. <laughs> Why can Paul say that? Because he's striving according to his power. Paul is seeing the work of God. He is seeing churches being strengthened. He is seeing spiritual growth day by day. Who's doing that? God is. Where's the proof? I can look at the people. I can see the questions that are being asked. I can see the answers that are being given. I can see the knowledge and the, and the sanctification, the holiness moving forward. That's why Paul can tell the Philippian church, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, if you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. In other words, because Christ has completed his work, because we are being sanctified in him, because we are justified in him, let us continue on knowing that who's working? God, that he has not forgotten us, that his spirit has not abandoned us. How do I know? Because I was here, and now where am I? I'm here, and I can look back and I rejoice. I mean, recovery ministries get this. I've been clean for a day. What do we go? Well, it's just one day, right? No, we say what? Good. It's been a week. What do we say? Yeah, all right, good. That's better than a day. It's been a week. It's been a month. Do we go, eh, it's been a month, kid. Come talk to me in a year. No, we say what? It's been a month. Good. Congratulations. Yay. I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you, don't ask me why that helps, but it does. <laughs> It's a quirk. I used to have to stomp, but I've gotten, I've gotten better at this. So, I, But I don't do it as much. It used to be, have to be three stomps. Now I can just throw it away. We do this also with people that are struggling with things like anxiety and depression. What day do you need to get to? Yeah, I got to get to tomorrow. I don't need to get to Christmas. I need to get to tomorrow. I don't have, I, some days I don't even have to get to tomorrow. I got to get past lunch. I got to get through dinner. Now I'm going to go to bed. And you know what? What was it then? It was a good day, and I can go to bed, and tomorrow we're going to get to lunch, and we're going to get to the end of the work day, and we're going to get through dinner, and at the end of the day, it was a good day, and you just keep going. That's the work, Christian, that the Holy Spirit is doing day by day. That's why I jokingly say we celebrate this, because that's what progress looks like. Very rarely, look, there are some of you, and I could point, but I'm not going to, but there are some of you that you have this. Be like, I was, you know, I was an alcoholic, or I was addicted to this, and it was just, Jesus came, and it was gone that day. Praise God, I love that. But you know what for most people it is? And we just, whether, no matter what it is, whether it's temptation with women, whether women, it's temptation with men, whether it's, alcohol, whether it's smoking, whatever it might be that you are trying to undo in this world, whether, again, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, corruption of the mind, it is just day by day. Because you can go weeks, and all of a sudden, what's going to happen? You never had that, right? Victory for weeks, and all of a sudden, there's that thought right there, bing, and it just pops up, and it sits there, and you're like, where did that even come from? If you ignore that, or you surrender to it, we go right back to where we started. But that's where the battle is. It's in that little moment at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, because everything bad happens on Tuesdays in my mind. <laughs> we kill it then, and we get through the next thing, and we work. That's how Christ works in us every day. That's how he accomplishes through his spirit every day. That's why Paul can rejoice, because he's sitting there with Epaphras, who founded the church, who's rejoicing and telling them. He's sitting there having suffered and persevered. He's sitting there having strengthened the churches, seen the church grow from Jerusalem into Samaria to Antioch across the Roman Empire. He has seen that and he can rejoice and know that God will be faithful to his promises because God has always been faithful to his people. He will not leave them. He will not forsake them. Therefore, we rejoice. And therefore, the encouragement to the churches is keep going. By his grace, through his power, 
keep going, knowing that he will not let you wander off. And if you feel like you are, it is because something has gone wrong, not with God, but with you. For that too, Christ died. Reevaluate your anchor. Make sure where you're standing. Make sure what you're working towards. Make sure the power by which you're working and persevere day by day. Let's pray.